Hello, and welcome to the Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Oh my word, I am excited for today's episode. My guest is Rob Paddock, founder and CEO of the Valenture Institute, a South African social impact organization focused on scaling quality education with online learning. I realize a lot of people claim to be doing this right now, but this one has a lot of unusual pieces. Long before founding Valenture in 2019, Rob and many of his family members founded Get Smarter, an edtech company offering short online courses to upskill working professionals, which he sold to 2U in 2016 for $120 million. He could have retired at this point, but he didn't. That part of the story is really interesting. What came next is more so. He founded an online K-12 school in 2019 to deal with the massive shortage of schools and teachers the country faces. We need to build 21 new schools every single year at a thousand student capacity per school, and we only have the budget to build one. That's not a unique challenge to the Western Cape, that is true for most of the provinces. He envisioned the school being a bit of a Robin Hood ecosystem. It charged full fees to wealthy parents, about $5,000 a year, and he planned to use the profits from that to subsidize the poor students with scholarships. But COVID made that tricky because suddenly online schools, ones built to be online and ones that were just remote, suddenly proliferated. Ballinger then pivoted and teamed up with the University of Cape Town to build UCT online, aimed at a different price point, about $240 US a month. The model is radical on so many levels. It seeks to surmount so many of the seemingly intractable issues in education. How to scale innovation, how to address the massive teacher shortage, budget shortfalls and a dire lack of capacity in South Africa's system, how to relieve overburdened teachers by disaggregating some of their roles, how to improve the feedback loop between universities and K-12 by partnering with them, how to better prepare students for university by working with them, and how to build safety and belonging into online learning, and how to do all of this, not in silos, but at a systems level. As many of you know, I can be a bit of an ed tech skeptic. We know the tech is powerful and we know it can work. And yet so often we see that it doesn't. I think this one's worth learning about. Rob Paddock, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jenny. It's a real privilege to be here today. Before we dig into UCT online school, set the scene for us. What are the greatest challenges to education in South Africa today? Jeepers, Jenny, we could spend this entire podcast talking about the challenges facing South African education system. Let me give you a couple highlight stats. Out of 100 children who start primary school, only four will ultimately go on to get a graduate degree at university. We have a system where there is 50% teacher absenteeism in places like the Eastern Cape. We have a system where, as an example, in the province where I live, the Western Cape, we need to build 21 new schools every single year at 1,000 student capacity per school, and we only have the budget to build one. That's not a unique challenge to the Western Cape. That is true for most of the provinces. For the continent more broadly, we know that about 40% of the world's youth population will be on the African continent by 2030. And in South Africa, quite strangely, 45% of our teachers will be retiring in the next 10 years. And we're not producing nearly as many new teachers coming into the system as they are leaving the system, and certainly not even close to being in in step with the population growth in the country. What is the legacy of apartheid right now in terms of what education looks like? 
It's no secret that apartheid is one of the greatest um, scars on the history of South Africa. We have a deeply, deeply socioeconomically divided country as a result. I'm thrilled to say that in terms of ethnic integration and so on, we are making huge strides, but the poverty legacy persists. I mean, Mamacheti Pakeng, who is now the vice chancellor of the University of Cape Town, she studied mathematics under a tree where she was growing up in an outdoor classroom. There was no physical school that she could go to. The apartheid regime implemented something called the Bantu education system where quite literally for black people or people of color, they had to go to a particular kind of school that was funded in a very specific way that taught them a completely separate curriculum to white students. I mean, just to give you a sense of how deeply entrenched the racial divide was, it's hard to overstate the atrocities that were implemented by the apartheid regime. We became a democratic society in 1994. We're now 2022, and we still carry a lot of those challenges. The socioeconomic divide is very real in South Africa, about 3% of the the population holding the vast majority of the wealth in in the country. Before you set up the Voluntary Institute and UCT Online, you built an ed tech company with your brother and father and I think maybe sister too, <laughs> Family Affair. <laughs> what were you solving for? What was the challenge that you saw and that you tried to address? So that business is a business called Get Smarter, which offers online short courses, specifically about eight to 10 weeks in duration, which are non-credit bearing in partnership with the world's leading universities. Those online short courses are, are designed specifically for working professionals to continue to upskill throughout their careers. So to give you a sense, uh, we started in 2006 with the University of Cape Town as our first partner institution. We ultimately grew the business to educate just over 200,000 students from 154 countries around the world. And we partnered with incredible global institutions such as the University of Cape Town, Harvard, Stanford, Oxford, Cambridge, London School of Economics, many more in a very wide range of fields. Um, One of the things that I think is no secret is that It's no longer appropriate to just get the skills for your initial job and expect that you can continue to do that job for 10, 20, 30 plus years. The reality is that the world of work is changing so rapidly that we need to continuously learn, unlearn, relearn throughout our lives. And we found a a really, uh, I think, powerful combination in industry relevant skill sets, which are taught in an open enrollment fashion, i.e. there are no entrance requirements in order to get into one of these programs, but which are certified by the world's leading universities and then then delivered online. I think that the immense traction that we got as a testament to the need for working professionals to continue to upskill. But what was really interesting was that we saw that a lot of students that came to us were students that didn't have an undergraduate or graduate degree in the first place. So particularly for the less formalized professions, it's say things like digital marketers, UX designers. Uh, we sought for even for things like property managers, where there's less formalization around the career, where we can add a level of credentialing to an otherwise fairly informal career trajectory. We saw this again and again as an incredibly powerful combination for those people who are getting into these skills. And that, that I would say, has just sped up, particularly with, with digital economy skills. So you sold that in 2017 to 2U for $120 million? Is that right? That's right. And then you suddenly had to decide what you were going to do with your life, which clearly at that point could have been sit on a beach, drink a pina colada and enjoy yourself. <laughs> what was that experience like? And where did you come out on the other side? It was a really interesting experience. I think fairly unusual for that to happen at a, at a reasonably young age. I was 35 when we sold. I did continue to work within 2U, which is a great, great company for a few months. I think the reason that I left was not because the company wasn't, wasn't great. I think I'm unemployable at this stage. <laughs> I think it's just when you've had the privilege of, of starting your own business and being in control of your kind of creative destiny and impact and so on, 
it is different to be employed. So I took some time off initially, uh, really enjoyed just hanging out with family, friends, ended up doing a lot of exercise. But then I found myself doing rather strange things like entering these Ironman competitions, these kind of long distance triathlons. And whilst that was fun for a bit to be kind of purely physical after being very intellectual for a long time, you realize that like, I'm doing all this work and sacrifice and so on. And like, no one else is benefiting except me. (laughs) And it's actually arguable whether I was even benefiting because it's like, it takes such a toll on your body and all of that just to come, I don't know, 200th in the race. It's like, what, like I kind of looked to myself, like, what are you doing, Rob? Like this doesn't really. uh, And what I realized was that I was looking for another challenge and yet no one else was benefiting from the kind of fruits of my, my efforts. So very quickly realized that I've got a lot more energy and drive to continue to solve challenges and engage in challenges. I think this is actually a privilege of the human psyche to have something to rub up against on a daily basis. Now I've got to say, I think it's a complete, let's call it an illusion of marketing to say that the real endpoint is to make money and, and kick back and do nothing you atrophy. Like at least in my experience, you're either growing or you are shrinking. And and personally, I'd rather choose to grow and you grow in response to challenge. So I decided what's a really big challenge that I can undertake. And certainly it was primary and secondary education in South Africa, but more more broadly throughout throughout emerging economies generally. So started the Valencia Institute in 2019 with the ambition of it being a social impact company that is for profit, but with impact as a primary motive of, of the business. And you've had a few interesting iterations. You launched a fully online private school, and it was intended to charge full fees, quite high fees, and then subsidize. Talk us through that first model and how that actually fit into the broader sort of institute. Like you said, it's been a classic startup journey with many iterations. The thinking was, let's create our own little Robin Hood ecosystem. One of the things that we found with Get Smarter is that by keeping our cost base in South Africa, but by increasingly serving an international audience, you can actually drive a very profitable business. So the thinking was, let me start a a high fee online school uh, offering an international curriculum between about eight and 10,000 US dollars per year. And let's use the surplus from that. So at least the majority of the surplus from that to cross subsidize no fee learners in what we call blended learning micro schools. Now to contextualize that a little bit, the high fee online school is a full school. It is not an extracurricular substitute. It is a full online school offering a British international curriculum, but introducing a kind of cross-curricular introduction of themes like sustainability, like 4IR and so on. So we spent a lot of time really trying to understand what is the future of work? What are the major challenges facing the future of humanity? And making sure that we integrated that into the primary curriculum. That we launched in September of 2019. And the intention was, hey, with with all of the challenges that are facing the South African education system, one of the biggest challenges being that that it's really hard for students in poor and impoverished communities to have access to high quality teachers. Why don't we figure out a way where students can come into physical spaces every single day um, and have access to high quality teachers because they're now learning online. And this, of course, is not just class on Zoom. This is a combination of high quality asynchronous materials that are pre-created, a kind of flipped classroom model where students are working through the material and then focusing teacher time on remediation, application, project work, etc. And then we'll probably speak separately about some of the other important additions such as coaching and so on. But one of the things that we find in the really challenging portions of the market is that Online only is a very challenging solution to implement. It's not just because children won't necessarily have access to the right devices or the right internet connectivity and so on. It's because home isn't often a safe place to work. It's really challenging for most children in South Africa whose home environment is not conducive, is not safe. And this is actually, I think, one of the underappreciated functions that schools often perform for children in impoverished communities 
they're actually a safe harbor from the very harsh realities of home that kids can escape to every single day. And what we recognized is that we still need to think about some sort of effective blend where kids can get the safety and sense of belonging from one of these community centers, from one of these co-learning centers, um, but they can get all the benefits and efficiencies of an online learning experience where not only is it is it pedagogically sophisticated, but they've also got access to really high caliber teachers who are located anywhere around the country. Now, the final piece of the puzzle here is that we still need to make sure that kids are coming into a space where they feel a sense of safety and belonging. One of the critical functions for that is some member of their community who acts as what we would call a success coach, who is on the ground from their community, is not a teacher, but is a warm, empathetic, we often call them the, the, the student's number one cheerleader and the mothers of the community, who come in and who provide that ad critical adult supervision every single day and provide accountability for the learners to make sure that they are arriving, that they are completing their work, they each have their own dashboards to make sure that they are tracking and monitoring the students that are in their classrooms. But Jenny, one of the fascinating things from, from this, this experience with students in these blended learning micro schools, we've seen astronomical academic gains. In our first year, we saw students jump on average three grade levels across all subjects in one academic year. This is simply unheard of. There's an old saying that I really appreciate. Talent is equally distributed. Opportunity is not. In these impoverished communities, there are bright minds just waiting to be unleashed if the right opportunity was to be presented to them. So we've been really, really excited to see the results of that model. It is a partnership that we've done in collaboration with our local Ministry of Education. And it is a model that the minister last year said was the most exciting model for the ministry to double down on in years to come. So we're working very close with the ministry to see how we can do a lot more of this sort of work in collaboration in the future. And just to be clear, the full fee paying kids and the kids who are being subsidized by those full fees, they're all learning together. Yes, absolutely. And, and for us, that was a really important part of the model, helping learners in all contexts to build bridges and to break down barriers. So, so much of our ability to actually kind of embrace diversity is about exposure. It's about familiarity and it's about, it's about demystifying what it is to live in another part of the country or another country. And, you know, it's amazing to see the friendships that have been formed. And how did that business model work out? So it worked out well initially. Um, so we, again, we launched in September 2019. We launched our inaugural cohort in January of 2020. We had a lot of reason to feel very excited about that model. COVID then hit and it was both a good and a bad thing for a business like ours. But I would say the net effect was that it was actually really challenging. To give you a sense, in South Africa, we were one of two online schools when we started. There's now 32 online schools. And the vast majority of these online schools are focused on serving learners who can afford about $5,000 per annum. Um, so suddenly what we saw was this market got incredibly clogged with a lot of new entrants, um, all competing for the same market share. And for the market, it became very difficult to distinguish the noise from the quality providers and so on. But the net effect is that it drove all of our customer acquisition costs up radically. For all of us who predominantly in the digital space rely on paid media, it's a marketplace. And the more people that are bidding on keywords, the more you drive up those customer acquisition costs. And that actually fundamentally threw out our business model. You know, the margin that we thought we had and that we were pushing into these cross-subsidized students, it just disappeared very, very quickly. And again, there were more students looking for online, but there were far more students who were actually just 
experiencing online in their own schools who had to go, let's call it emergency remote learning. So it, it actually created very, very difficult business dynamics for, for the high fee sector. So we kept on pivoting. We've had incredible investors such as GSV who came, came in with us in 2020, saw the potential of our model, believed in the leadership group and really walked by our side through, throughout the, the, the many pivots of the business. The ultimate pivot of the business was in partnership with the University of Cape Town, launching the UCT Online High School. And that's available to learners around the country and around the continent at just $140 per month. And this was really interesting for us to see. Again, we, we started as a social impact company. That was the one non-negotiable in terms of our pivots and what we were trying. It's like, if we can't have an impact on serving the underserved, then what are we doing every morning waking, waking up and working really hard? So what was interesting to find was that there is this portion of the market that we in South Africa would call the missing middle. This is a portion of the population where at least one uh, member of the family is employed. So to be clear, we're not with this model serving the poorest of the poor. That is certainly our objective and we will get there. And we do have extensive scholarship schemes and partnerships where we are serving a fraction of our students in the lowest socioeconomic brackets. But this is a bracket where 60% of our families are learning less than 350,000 Rand total household income. And we've got only got a very small percentage of our families who, are, who would be considered wealthy by, by South African standards. 80% of the learners who are at the UCT online high school come from public schools, i.e. they are leaving the public system to come to a low-fee private school. And only about 5% of the learners actually come from private schools. The remaining 15% are previous homeschoolers. And what's interesting is that there is this portion of the market where, again, it's not the poorest of the poor, but they are in an income bracket where they are unable to access private school education through the regular brick and mortar model, because it's just really hard if you've got physical infrastructure to get a high quality education experience price point down to $140. Typically, that, is, that starts at about $250 in, in, in South African terms for the cheapest private high schools. And even that, there's only an example of, of a handful of those. Um, the majority started about $300, $350 a month. That's, that's your kind of entry-level point for, for most private schooling in South Africa. So there's this portion of the model that is desperately dissatisfied with the government schooling that they're, that they're receiving, but unfortunately just unable to access private schooling. So online has unlocked this really interesting new opportunity for this portion of the market where suddenly with a reputable institution like the University of Cape Town with Valencia, they can access high quality education at $140 a month. And then what's being so interesting is to see how parents and not-for-profits, in fact, are, in, are creating these enabling environments for students to come to, I guess, what you could call pod schools, micro schools, effectively what we had initially kind of conceived of with our blended learning micro schools, except that they're standing up the physical infrastructure that's required. You know, we've got an example of a church in the Northern Cape that's taken 200 seats on the UCT online high school. They turned the entire church into a co-learning center during the day. Adult members of the community are providing adult supervision during the day. We've got a partnership with the South African Human Rights Commission, um, which, which is then further partnered with a, with a not-for-profit called Mbuleko. Uh, we have an amazing uh, lady who leads Mbuleko called Sibu, who has got 14 learners who are in a valley of a thousand hills in, in rural KwaZulu-Natal. And the, this is truly one of the poorest communities in South Africa. And yet we have 14 learners that are there that are absolutely Absolutely thriving academically in this UCT online high school model. And there are dozens and if not hundreds of examples like this, where parents are creating this kind of enabling circumstances, communities are coming together and creating mini schools. And it's very exciting to see. So you opened UCT online in January of this year. So January, 2022, you were expecting how many students and how many did you get? Our rather aggressive targeting initially was to enroll 1,200 students. We launched the marketing for this in July of 2021. 
we got to 1,200 students with paid applications within three weeks. Um, the, the demand just completely blew us away. We actually couldn't scale up fast enough to serve more than 5,000 students in January 2022. So in January, we had we had 5,000 students start with us for our inaugural cohort. Students from all around the country, and we have got do have a long tail of students from other countries around the world with a total of 64 countries globally. Um, but again, very long tail. The vast majority are, are in South Africa and indeed the, the, the SADC region around around. South Africa. So you started a school with 5,000 students. I mean, that's just in and of itself, that's quite a remarkable feat. That's not a typical starting cohort for a school, which is usually about 25, I would add. But so this is grades 8 to 12. Is that correct? That, that's exactly right. Was that incoming class in one grade or they span the grades? Uh, so grades 8 to 11, there's a regulatory uh, requirement that we can't start with grade 12, which is our matriculation year. We actually had 12,900 students apply to join us. And again, we actually just couldn't scale up fast enough to serve more than the 5,000, at least to do it, to do that responsibly. And now explain to me the teaching bit of it. How did you come to team up with UCT and how does the division of labor work between the teaching and the student support? So we, as Valencia Institute, we are a private sector partner to, to the university. Part of our value proposition to the university is that we will provide the upfront capital and we will completely de-risk this offering. We also provide the majority of the operations, i.e. the teachers, the support coaches, the technology, etc. What's really interesting when I started speaking to Mama Kheti Paking about this possibility of launching an online school together. Let me give you a stat that really kind of blew me away. First year undergraduate students at the University of Cape Town, there is a 70% dropout rate of first year black students. And this is a university that is deeply committed to transformation in the university, of the academics in the university, of the student of the student body. And you can imagine the kind of throughput and from an institution like UCT of leaders going out into top industries, starting businesses, et cetera, and yet 70% of first-year Black students fail. And this is something that, that Mamaketi has been very aware of and has launched no less than 11 different initiatives over the years to try and, let's say, kind of um, provide some extra teacher training, um, to provide maths boot camps to, to previously disadvantaged students, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the clear insights is that you can't remediate 12 years of poor schooling in first-year university on top of a full university load. I mean, one of the initiatives, they've done an extended, extended degree program and provided all sorts of support mechanisms. But again, the gap is too big. It's too darn big. I didn't mention this stat earlier, but in South Africa, we have an average grade level understanding that spans five grades. And what that means is that you can be a grade seven mathematics student, but you've actually got a grade two understanding of mathematics. But the system is so such that you just keep on getting pushed through with the rest of the cohort because teachers don't have time to, to individually remediate. If you fail a student, that just means that they clog up the next batch of students that are moving through the system. So we've got this very hard problem to solve where students are arriving at university and they're not prepared to succeed. Um, so it's one of the main reasons that a university like UCT decided, hey, we actually need to vertically integrate. We need to get involved further upstream so that we can fundamentally affect transformation in our university body and society more, more broadly. So to answer your question more broadly, one of the, the ways that we've conceptualized working together is partnering with the university with a, with a very integrated shared governance structure. So at the very highest level, uh, we have what's called a oversight committee, which is chaired by Mamakheti Paking, the UCT vice chancellor. And then there is the UCT online high school principal and myself. Now, what we're involved in is kind of business strategy, uh, finance, consider us almost like a board for the UCT online high school. Then there's delegated authority down to what's called the operations and governance committee. Um, 
Um, that includes equal representation from both Valencia and UCT. That is involved in things like quality assurance of the academic material, ensuring that there's alignment between what we're teaching and where the university is seeing the biggest gaps in terms of their first year university students. Governance, uh, complaints and issues that need to be escalated up, up to the oversight committee, et cetera, et cetera. So we have this very, very integrated governance and, and oversight committee structure. We then have delegated authority down to the UCT online high school principal, who then has the teachers, success coaches, technology that all reports in underneath her. So you have your teachers, and I'd love to hear who those teachers are. And then we have our success coaches. Where are you finding them? And how is it working having those two roles separated? Because as much as I agree with this premise of needing to disaggregate it, great teachers I had were great because they knew me and they knew math. Right. And so it was all put together, which I get is maybe a privileged position that can't be replicated. So let's dig into that if we could a little bit. Maybe just to speak about the more privileged education experience where we have one teacher who's got this rich array of data points about who we are and how we're learning. And it goes beyond the academics. Right. I mean, I think that, that that's fair to say it's like when your teachers knew you and cared for you in the academic subject and beyond cheap as it's powerful. So what I'm certainly not saying is that education is broken. It's just that education, when you're trying to do it really cost-effectively, is impossible if you try to replicate what Eaton does in a context like South Africa. You just can't make it work. What I'm not trying to say ever is that there is a fundamental problem with, with education. It's just cost-effective education that's actually accessible. We can't continue to keep thinking the way that we have. So for us, this has been the major obsession. When you look at when you look at schools, what drives the majority of their costs, 70% of, of school costs are purely HR. It is human resources. It is salaries for predominantly teachers. And then the question is, how do we think about creating a more efficient system? And we know what needs to happen because teachers perform all these different functions. They are subject matter experts. They're lesson planners. They are lesson facilitators. They are markers. They are social workers. They are sports coaches, et cetera, et cetera. And in South Africa, we actually have a list of 17 jobs that teachers are expected to perform simultaneously. And again, you look at that and, and great teachers who can do that for small classes, it works fabulously, absolutely fabulously. Try to scale that up and you start to see the wheels falling off very quickly. So for us, the obsession has been, how do we think about disaggregating this role into its component parts and then putting experts in every single field and then providing a level of cohesion through data. We have a totally separate team of learning designers that are dealing with the actual development of the curriculum. Learning designers working together with subject matter experts, then working together with graphic designers, e-learning authors, learning technologists, et cetera. That's a whole discrete function. And even within it, many, many functions that need to come together, strong project management that needs to drive it, et cetera, et cetera. There's then a separate team of teachers that deal with one-to-one -one tutoring. There's a separate team of teachers that deal with small group tutoring that are really skilled in creating generative discourse amongst smaller groups of students. There's a separate team of markers. There is a separate team, to your point, of support coaches or success coaches. So these are not individuals who come from a teaching and learning background. They come from a counseling and psychology background. And their entire focus is keeping our learners on track, providing holistic pastoral care to the learners. There's a totally separate team of technical support officers, and so it goes and so it goes. And you ask exactly the right question, which is what well, part of the value of my teacher back in the day was that they knew me. <laughs> like they could they could have all these all these kind of more intuitive reference points about who I am, and they could see when I might be struggling or a little bit less engaged in a classroom, and that would be a prompt to have a little conversation in the corridor. And the reality is that not all of that is replicable in this segregated online environment, but parts of it are replicable, provided that you have a strong data stream behind what students are doing in every aspect of their studies, and that that, that is then collated in a single view of your customer. 
who are they? How are they doing in mathematics right now? How are they doing in geography? What's the contextual kind of information that teachers have fed back? How have we seen their user behavior change over the weeks? Have we seen spikes and dips in terms of their behavior, et cetera? And what ends up happening is that the support coaches become the primary anchor. This is where the ratios are the lowest and the support coaches are actually paired with students from day one of their studies right through to when they graduate at the end of high school. So there's a longitudinal relationship here, which again, I think you can appreciate from all of our own schooling. Part of the value is really when teachers know us or when adults who care about us know who we are. And this is something that we see kind of anchored with our with our success coaches and then supported by individual teachers that, that come in around them. It is a model that we believe very deeply in. We do not have it perfect yet. So I just want to be very clear about that. We're doing some things exceptionally well, and there are other things that we simply haven't got right yet. As an example, one of the things we're, we're busy implementing is, let's call it a weekly huddle amongst the various stakeholders who are angling in to try and support these learners, just to provide that more qualitative feedback, which you know maybe wasn't captured in one of the updates from a teacher, or perhaps was too long to get across in a Slack message about it. Like we really, really, really need to make sure that, that we've got all the different reference points, some of which are quantitative, but many of which actually need to be more qualitative. We have got teachers who, on paper, really liked the idea of coming in and kind of focusing on an area where they are deep specialists. We're now kind of five months in and we start to see some teachers that are actually struggling with the pure repetition of, of a more siloed function um, when they're used to more breadth and depth in terms of what they do. So there's a huge amount, Jenny, that we're still learning and refining, but fundamentally we believe in the model. And I guess if you take a more sinister view of it, we don't have much, much better option at this point. If you want to drive down the price point, you want to create efficiency. One of the things you have to do is disaggregation and specialization. The other thing that it does allow us to do, which has been really interesting is it allows us to put our processes under management uh, because now you can see if a sub, if an assignment has been submitted on a Wednesday, it needs to be fed back to a student with rich feedback by a Friday. And we have all of those processes under management and we can see whether the work's been done or whether it hasn't been done. If the obsession is quality education at scale, this is the, the kind of systems thinking that is required in order to get us there. What I'm certain of right now is that we need to introduce more heart into what we're doing. It can't just come from the support coaches. We need the opportunity for students to experience kind of the warmth of a kind of human community beyond just the support coaches. And, and, and this amongst a long list of other things that we're figuring out is still, still a work in progress. And do you think this will drive more teachers into the profession? Because maybe it's a more discreet task. I certainly would like to think so. Um, I think our application volume for teaching at UCT Online High School would be a testament to that. Teachers are burnt out. Like It's really hard. And I think what's, what's even more true is that the best performing teachers typically don't work in the hardest areas. And yet the heart of teachers is one of impact, of one where they want to make a difference. But the sacrifice is too high to go and live in a really hard part of the country with uh, low salary and minimal resources purely to have that impact. And I think what's what's exciting is to see teachers with that heart and passion for effecting social change through our platform actually have that opportunity to do, do so. You've now worked in two very different contexts in terms of online learners. So 30-year-olds upskilling themselves, and then you have these high school students, which totally creatures in so many lovely ways. I have a few of them. Um, <laughs> what, is, what is a 14 to 18 year old need online in their learning that a 30 year old does not? 
the differences are stark. I think there's both age differences and socioeconomic differences in the comparison between Get Smarter and, and what we're now doing at Valencia. First and foremost, um, that role of the success coaches could not be more important in the context of a high school education. The inspiring adult who believes in you, that person who you can feel safe with, it's something that I think even we underestimated how important it was going to be um, to make sure that students feel a sense of belonging, feel a sense of home, feel a sense of community. I'd say that's the second point. We have seen that kids are desperate for community in the school environment. That's probably not a surprise to, to any of the educators on the line. And yet what's probably has been surprising for us is the students' ability to instigate their own community building is way less than we thought. We put a couple of platforms and kind of extracurriculars and so on that students can voluntarily sign up for. What we find is that we actually need to give our students quite a strong nudge to get them into communities. Once they're in and once they feel settled and comfortable and supported and, and it's not going to be a dangerous place for them and so on, jeepers, then they go they, and, they, and they go fast. But the initial nudge to not only get students involved in communities, but to then support them, we've, we've seen is really important. We recently have introduced things like a guardian meetup app where parents and guardians can then take the initiative to self-organize meetups in their geography. The app is really, really intuitive and easy to use. And this is another thing that we're seeing just radical uptake since we've launched the app. And again, when we launched, we just didn't fully appreciate how desperately we need to, to, to facilitate. We don't have to do all the work, but we need to create the technology to, to make it seamless for parents to self-organize and create these meetups, little learning hubs, et cetera. So there's been a ton of lessons that we've been learning. I guess the last thing I would say is that learning gaps are huge. In a, in a country like South Africa, but this is true for many emerging economies. We've had to spend a huge amount of time with our learners, just helping them get up to speed effectively with where they should be in terms of their grade level attainment. And that's something that we are putting a lot of energy into things like effective diagnostics and, and diagnostics that can that can identify where the actual gaps are, particularly subjects like math, like math, science, English, to effectively diagnose where those gaps are and then provide targeted remediation to, to fill in the gaps, as it were, to get students back onto a kind of even playing field that we can then build on top of. Unfortunately, in places like South Africa, we just have a system that is building every year on increasingly shaky foundations. Um, and this is one of the reasons why, you know, I referenced the 70% uh, dropout rate of first year black students at UCT. It's like, if you're not sufficiently academically prepared, you will not succeed at university. And this is something we have to fix as a country. There's a lot of talk in high income countries that higher ed is overvalued, overpriced, not worth it. Do you think in the next 10 years in high income countries and then in low income countries, higher ed enrollments go up or down? In low-income countries, higher enrollments go up, for sure. My view is that this continues to be a very powerful signal to the market in terms of employability. One of the preconditions for that is that we continue to improve the primary and secondary education systems. But what we're seeing in no uncertain terms is, is a rapid deployment of lower fee tertiary institution opportunities. And I think that it's almost a luxury of higher-income countries to be able to kind of self-select based on skills only and so on. I would argue that universities still have a very, and higher ed still has a very strong role to play in the future of emerging economies. It's still the aspiration that most of our community looks to as like, that's how I ensure success. <laughs> Let me get my, my children to university. And, and from there, the reality is that in countries like South Africa, the prospects of graduate students are much higher, much higher than those who haven't completed tertiary studies. Okay, so we were just both at ASU GSB. It's basically a giant ed tech love fest. Where are we right now with ed tech? Is it living up to the promise of improved access and improved quality? 
Yes and no. I would say that the primary reason, particularly in primary and secondary education, that EdTech hasn't really lived up to its potential is because EdTech is, is almost always disparate siloed deployments. You'll have a great maths app that can do great diagnostics and effective remediation, but it's a standalone application that doesn't integrate with the systems that the teacher is already using or the reporting that they have to do at a district level. And it's completely separate for the great app that they have to do effective science teaching. And what ends up happening is that you expect teachers on the ground to become learning technologists because now suddenly they're having to do flipping tech support to these kids. And you're actually asking them to do a lot of extra reporting on top of this in ways that are not integrated, which actually makes more admin for them. And these apps and initiatives largely fail, not because as a standalone, they don't work, but because the ecosystem in which they operate, i.e., the teachers who need to be capable of using them and the value proposition, which actually should be make the teacher's life easier, doesn't meet meet, meet its potential. So does EdTech work? No, no question. But is it is it feasible for it to be implemented when it's uh, this series of disparate systems? I would say that the answer is almost always no. And so this is one of our obsessions is, can we create a fully integrated backend for digital transformation of the education sector in South Africa? And that means it needs to be a one-stop shop. No separate systems, no separate clicks, no separate reporting. Like everything needs to be put together in a way where you've actually designed this by working with teachers who are on the ground and understanding how you can make their lives easier. Okay, three rapid fire questions. What's your favorite book about learning? It is called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And it's actually largely about creativity, but more than creativity, it's about bravery. Uh, it's about the willingness to put yourself out there and to put yourself forward. And for me, learning always has been intellectual risk-taking at, at its core. And the question is, how do you help students graduate towards increasing independence and, and intellectual risk-taking over time? It doesn't speak specifically to education, but in my mind is, is all the enabling factors that need to be true for, for that intellectual risk-taking. You might have just answered my next question. What's your favorite book not about learning? <laughs> <laughs> you can just pick another book. I mean, Jeepers, I've been very, I've been very impacted outside of education by, you know, autobiography of a yogi when I was younger and let's call it the more kind of Eastern metaphysical bits and bobs. And what are you binge watching? <laughs> I don't watch too much TV, but I did binge watch Vikings a while ago. I got into it and I was like, oh my word, I think in some past life I must have been, because I just couldn't stop, you know, it's just so good. Rob Paddock, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jenny. Where to start? I love Rob's use of jeepers and also of, oh my word. On a more serious level, I admire the ambition of UCT Online, the coordinated K-12 university partnership underlying it, the attempt to lighten the load on teachers and the scale of his ambition to get high quality learning to tens of thousands of children in South Africa and ultimately beyond at an affordable price point. One thing that struck me at ASU GSV in San Diego last month was how many people seemed so frustrated with the systems they were working in that they felt they had to move out of them. The idea of a mid-price point private school, i.e. not for elite and not for the poorest in society, is testimony to that desire. Parents want more and they and their children deserve better. But I did have a lot of questions. I'm eager to see how they address adding more heart into online school, a comment Rob made that really struck with me. I think it's cool that parents are being creative and ambitious about co-creating spaces and schools, but I also wonder if they have the time and the capacity to do that. I love the idea of disaggregating the teacher's role to lighten the load, but I worry that one role might be too narrow. There must be a happy medium between having 100 jobs and having one or two. But I see a real triple play here. 
I see a lot of heart in Rob and his team's commitment to making this work. I see deep experience from Valenture and also their partners, the University of Cape Town in Beleku. And I see an enormous challenge. Rob said 45% of teachers will be retiring in the next 10 years. He cited 50% absenteeism rates, a 70% dropout rate among Black students at the University of Cape Town in their first year. There's so much to do and it's clear the old model is not going to work. The economics just don't add up. Bonus, next week we will feature a mini episode with one of Valenture's partner organizations, Imbeleku, and its founder, Sibu. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.